Hi listeners, welcome to episode 10 of the Define Normal podcast. This is the final episode of my Black History Month series. I also hope you enjoyed the dating app and friendship solo episodes. It's February, so we had to talk about love. As the kids say, some personal news. This is my last week in my New York City apartment. I'm packing it all up, or I actually paid someone to pack it all up, and I'm going to put everything into storage this weekend. I'm going to enjoy some time without Elise for the foreseeable future, or until I have to be in an office again, but don't worry, New York is home and I'll be back. Anyway, this week's episode is a good one. I virtually sat down with Rob Rush. We talk about his journey as a first-generation college student who went from the South Bronx to Harvard University. We also talk about a new platform that he's building called Become What You Can't See. It's a community for first-generation students by first-generation college students. Without further ado, here's my interview with Rob. Hi, Rob. Welcome to episode 10 of the Define Normal podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, this this is an amazing experience. This podcast is great. So Shelby, just want to give you your flowers now. You're, you're doing an incredible job. How I'm doing, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, it's, it's five o'clock here in New York City. Uh, it's the weekend. So we're in a good mood right now. I love that. Um, so there's so much to get into today. I think the basis of our conversation is about you being a first-generation college student, but there's so much more to you than that. So let's start off with a little intro. Tell the people about yourself. For sure. So name is Robert Rush. Uh, my PGPs are he, him, his. Uh, I was born and raised in the South Bronx, New York. Uh, it's the borough at the top of Manhattan, for those who don't know. <laughs> um, I am 25, which is crazy to say, uh, not having a quarter-life crisis at the moment, uh, but maybe later. And a few things else about me. You know, I'm an avid performer. I, I love to dance, uh, spoken word poetry, uh, dabble in acting here and there. And yeah, I think that really rounds it out. So my first question for you is, you talked a little bit about growing up in the South Bronx. Like, tell me what growing up was like. What was your community like? What was your family like? It's funny because the, the Bronx is an area where the its name already widely precedes itself. So it's, whenever I would tell people that I'm from the Bronx, even in New York, they have this expression, right? Uh, just because of what they've either seen in the media or what they know, right? Some people know the Bronx for hip hop and being the foundations of the world's largest music um, genre today, or they know the Bronx for, for being um, a part of what New York was like in the eighties and nineties, right? Destitution, poverty, crime, and what have you. So there are all these perspectives of it that people already have before, you know, I even get a chance to explain my experience. So uh, thank you. I would say growing up in the Bronx was 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 nice in the sense that I had a, a loving mom who, you know, always provided for me uh, just like a sense of safety, security and and fun. You know, I think the Bronx community is one that's super residential. For those who don't know, like most of the buildings um, and, and areas in the Bronx are, are, are super residential. So we have a lot of homes, apartment buildings, and it's really ran by small businesses, right? Like people who are um, starting their own ventures or owning their own stores. So there's a lot, there's a really huge, like small business community and residential community in the Bronx. Part of the, the borough's history as well is when you think about the Bronx versus, you know, say it's cousin Manhattan, there are key differences. Uh, for one, Manhattan is known for skyscrapers, you know, being, being the heart of the city that never sleeps. But what people don't, don't realize is that a lot of those people who are awake, keeping that city alive, don't actually live in Manhattan. 
Um, they come from boroughs like the Bronx, right? Folks who are working blue collar jobs in those big buildings that keep the lights on, that make sure the buildings are clean, right? It's a very, you know, blue collar community in the Bronx. So where we have a lot of small businesses um, in a lot of residential areas, we don't really have the same commerce or economic flow of, of dollars in our community. So, you know, a lot of people live in um, low income and, and abject poverty. The Bronx is also a borough where it was ranked one of the poorest boroughs in, in the United States for, for the longest time. Some of the highest rates of food insecurity, lack of access to technology, which, what have you, all exist here, right? But, you know, I think what also exists are people like me, right? Like, I, like even in me speaking about this, none of it is really coming off as sad. I mean, these things sound horrible, but people are making a life here, right? And are building, building lives for themselves and, and, and making it work. So I think the Bronx is really a, a tribute to the resilience that, you know, New York is really known for without all the glitz and glamour um, that come with a New York pamphlet. That's a perfect explanation. The Bronx feels like the real New York. As a transplant from Ohio, I live in Manhattan, and I feel like when you talk about your home, it's with so much pride and it feels like a real place. Like, I don't know my neighbors. I live across the street from a Chipotle and I live in walking distance of the office. Like it's very commercialized. It's not mom and pop businesses. It's like you pay money to live in this area. It's not about community. And whenever you talk about home, it's this glowing, like, I love these people. I love this place. Like these, these are the people who run New York. Like this is it. Oh, I moved here with my bags and I just live in New York. That's like a real place. It's home. Yeah, and I, I I I'm glad you mentioned that, Shelby. What I what I try to do is, you know, um, and we're we're actually due for this is is bring people to the Bronx, right? Especially folks that um, I've met who aren't from the city, because it it gives a more holistic perspective of the New York experience when you exit the Manhattan bubble, right? And I think the beauty of New York comes in the fact that there are four other boroughs that have their own personalities and their own. Um, unique attributes outside of it as well that really make this community um, really special. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love talking about the Bronx. I mean, it definitely wasn't always like this. You know, growing up, I I had uh, opinions about just the the way in which our infrastructure was built compared to other parts of the city. So you know, I will say that this is something that has come over time, but I'm happy that it has um, because I have an opportunity to really champion it in, in, in places and spaces that folks that come from my background don't otherwise come from. Um, so I know, I know, you know, I would love to talk about that a little bit as well, but so I'm not going to get ahead of myself in terms of the, in terms of the topics here. Yeah, definitely. We'll get there. So talking about growing up in the Bronx, what was going to school like there and what was your experience? How long did you go to school there? Yeah, for sure. So you know what's interesting is that I, when people say growing up in New York, you 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 like age like five times your your actual age. That's really true, because there there are just things that you're exposed to in New York that you don't get exposed to. I think on on like a typical commute to school. For instance, whenever I watch TV, people are either getting on a school bus or getting driven by their parents right to the local high school campus or middle school campus, and they're hanging out, and then they get picked up by their parents or on that school bus. So. You know, they're, the world that they're traveling in, in between school and home, is largely, uh, like, untouched in a lot of ways. Um, and then they're also with their peers. They're either with their friends um, who are the same age as them or their parents who are, who are their family members. 
it's not the same in New York <laughs> and really in the Bronx either. So we have a public transit system, which is uh, the main form of transportation uh, in, the, in the city. And going, going to school here in the Bronx, I would take the train all the time, right? And the train is a place where you get exposed to all the elements of New York. I mean, from people waking up at 5 a.m. to go to work to, you know, street performers on the train that are, are that are either playing music or dancing to your occasional person asking for money or, or, or exchanging some type of favor for something. Um, you get exposed to so much at such a young age that it really does inform how you grow up. And for me, going to school, even the trip to school was an experience in, in seeing newness, right? Because you just didn't know what you're going to expect when you got on the train and exposure to so many different types of people. I mean, old, young, different races that um, of that nature. And all of those really informed what we brought to the classroom. Like we would talk about rides to the train in class. Like, yo, did you see that dude on the six train? Like, it was crazy. You know what I mean? Like we would talk about all those things. So like our commute became a part of, um, of our education in a lot of ways, as much as the school classroom was. I went to a public school um, here in New York called TAG. It was, it's actually at the tip of Manhattan in what we call Spanish Harlem. So my maturation really was between the Bronx and Harlem, right? And at that school, right, like it was, uh, they, we had a specialized program for, for kids who were in low-income communities that demonstrated aptitude in, in academia. So they kind of placed us in like this school to help foster that. And it was a really huge complex. We were like this small school in like a large building with five other schools, which is also very common in New York. Where you have a lot of the a lot of schools placed in a similar building and sharing space. So my entire experience, as much as it was in the classroom, was just also taking in so many different types of people and environments um, every single day. And I think that that really informs who I am today in a lot of ways because I, I I pride myself on being able to connect with multiple different types of people and also understand a little bit of the context in which other people live because I was exposed to such a diverse background growing up. Which is really a perk of growing up in New York. I mean, mine was the exact contrast. I'm one of those kids that you see on TV who was driven or went on the school bus and like went to school with the same kids from fourth grade until I graduated. And it's just such a difference. We didn't see anything. Like we didn't see anything interesting. Um, we didn't talk about anything that was really wildly interesting. And it's really cool they are able to point out that it built you like you got to see all these different things and you're going to school with people who aren't necessarily like your next door neighbors like it's all different types of kids and that also builds a community and just different perspectives because you're not all in the same situation but i will say shelby like i'm a little jealous of your experience too because all of us in new york we're like all we all watch the same national tv shows and we're all just like why aren't why isn't our experience like this like everybody's out here having this grand old time with sunny sunny fields and grass and playing and having all these little side innuendos and we're over here taking a train underground <laughs> you know going to going to these these big brick buildings you know what i mean so i i think there's this pros and cons to, to both but uh like to your point i i don't think i would trade minds for the world because you know, again, New York really is a microcosm in, in a lot of ways, and, it, and it, it creates an ability to adapt, right, and and be mobile. And especially coming from the Bronx, where, like I said, like we the resources weren't as readily available to us as it is in, in other boroughs. I mean, a lot of times the trains that I took were delayed. Sometimes they didn't come at all. And there's always some type of innovation that you have to do 
just to just to move through your day to day life. And that's why I think growing up in the Bronx, there's so much un, untapped potential and talent because so many people take advantage of skill sets that we you know, in, in corporate America, look for people who are able to adapt quickly to situations, people who can innovate on the fly, people that have the ability to communicate and and negotiate with diverse groups of people, right? These are things that people practice just growing up and why I really am happy to be able to talk about this in this way. Yeah, I love it. And you talked a little bit about being adaptable and being able to move around. So you spent part of your time going to school in New York, but then eventually you moved to go to boarding school. So can you tell me about that experience? Where was your boarding school? What was that like? Boarding school was the experience where I, I, I got to kind of see a little bit of the the TV suburb life. Just to give people a quick uh, quick background there, for high school, I, I had an opportunity to join this program called Prep for Prep, a phenomenal nonprofit in New York City, um, helping to provide, again, kids from low-income backgrounds and under-resourced areas with educational opportunities to help advance their, their status in life. So I wouldn't be there, be here without prep and without my mom forcing me to go to prep <laughs> in the first place and making me do extra schoolwork uh, on top of that. Uh, but through that program, I got exposed to boarding school, which for me was a, a whole new world, right? To think that we can live on a campus and, and go to classes as if we're in college at the age of 14, 15, just like baffled me, but also excited me just because, you know, growing up in New York, that was the only thing that I've seen. And it was an opportunity to just experience something completely different than I've seen before. So to answer your question, I think my, my initial thoughts of going to boarding school was, was, was excitement and, and anticipation. But I think the actual experience, right, and the applicable aspect of it, I couldn't have imagined how I would feel. There was a moment where I was at boarding school where just looking at how I dressed compared to how my classmates dressed was very different, right? I went to school in Massachusetts at in the town of Andover. For those who don't know, Andover is a very wealthy, predominantly white town. And the school, the, the boarding school that I went to was named after the town, also predominantly white and wealthy as well. So a lot of the students who go there come from like the, what they call the New England elite. A lot of them are legacy at some of the top schools, top colleges in the country. Some folks have family members who are, you know, princes and heirs and presidents and what have you at different countries and, and even in the United States. So it was really a, a school full of a lot of different people. And then you have me, right? And other students like me that are just regular Joe Schmoes from, <laughs> from other places. And what I felt was so beautiful about that experience was in that environment, we were all the same in a way, right? Like we all took the same classes, lived in the same types of dorms, leveraged the same materials. And it really showed me how much of society is separated by socioeconomic conditions and prevents people who would have commonalities from getting together. So for instance, you know, even on campus, right? I'm from New York City, you know, I have my, my Yankee fitted, which I got on right now, have maybe some Jordans or some Tims, you know what I'm saying? Like I talk with a very specific accent. That was so uncommon there as most people were used to the very New England style of speaking, style of dress. You know, they had the L.O. Bean boots and their uh, the Canada gooses and the, the barber jackets, right? So in a lot of ways, I stood in complete contrast to that environment. And it did make it, make it difficult for me to, to make immediate connections just because people couldn't conceptualize my presence there because it was so different than what they've ever experienced. 
And it was hard for me for a little bit because I, I, I felt this pressure and this tension to assimilate, right, buy the Sperry's, buy the LLB boots and, and conform to the environment, but also stay true to who I am, right, and maybe go super, super Bronx and, and wear two Yankee fitted hats just to make sure people knew it was real, you know, because I also felt like because I was entering into a predominantly white and wealthy environment, what would my friends back home think of me, right? Before I left to boarding school, a friend of mine was saying in, 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 in class, because we were just talking about it, and I, my friends were happy for me, of course, but he had said that, yeah, when Rob comes back from Andover, he's going to look white. And everybody started laughing because, you know, it's just one of those things where we've never, for, for us, a lot of that was for a different type and class of person. We, nobody in my school has ever met somebody who's went to boarding school before. And the only thing that we saw on TV was Zoe 91210, right? And all that, that whole experience, right? So in our eyes, we're visualizing, you know, who and what these experiences mean and, and who and what they're meant for. And that just wasn't us. So, you know, going to boarding school, I had this tension of like, how do I square these two realities, in a way that it's true to who I am, but also allows me to persist in this environment and be successful here. And I would say the way that I did that was, you know, I figured that because I presented something so different to this environment, that I had a unique value asset that made this environment special. Andover's motto is youth from every quarter. Um, and that's every quarter of the globe. For me to be there and me to be at this school I'm more of a true embodiment of that than the typical person who attends that school. In a lot of ways, because of me being from such a different background that just wasn't known in that environment, I was bringing that intrinsic value to the school itself. And in a lot of ways, bringing an eminent critique to the school that it doesn't really live up to it often. So for me, the way in which I understood my place at Andover was one, to provide an immediate understanding of what Andover needs to do to be better about living that virtue and then also doing what I can while I'm there so the next person who has a similar background as me has an easier time going through the school. So with that mission in mind, I, it allowed me to put my head down and really get to work on amassing as much social capital as I could and also getting involved um, very deeply in the community um, and building there. And it served me well. You know, I wound up serving as one of the school presidents. Um, I was captain of the track team. Uh, I taught classes uh, about race, equity, and, and inclusion on campus, and I'm still connected there today. You know, I do occasional seminars here and there. And for somebody, for a kid from the South Bronx, right, with a 10% chance of going to college, to have such an impact on a school like that, I think just shows the power of the community that I come from and all the communities around the world that Andover supposedly seeks to serve. Well, now I want to give you your flowers because I think a lot of black people and people of color in general, anyone who feels othered in a predominantly white environment has a similar experience where they pull up and they think they have to assimilate. I mean, I've spoken about it extensively at this point in the podcast. Like I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and my it wasn't as affluent as your boarding school, but it was definitely like a certain brand that you needed to present, like certain clothes you'd have to wear. Sperry's were definitely a thing. I had Sperry's. I was not the person who resisted. I had them in two colors. So it's like, I'm so impressed. The reason I said I want to give you your flowers is I'm so impressed that in high school, you were able to understand, okay, well, they're not living up to their values. I'm a value add. I'm not... 
I don't have to be you. That's the beauty. Like, I'm Rob from the South Bronx. I'm smart. I have something to bring to the table. I have a different point of view. So you guys are going to listen to it. And you challenge their mission, have them rise to the occasion, and infiltrated the school. I mean, at 27, I I wish. Like, I, I feel like I struggle, you know, to do that in life today. So I'm really impressed that in high school you were able to do that. Because I wasn't I – I wouldn't say I was shaking any tables in high school. It was very much like – Shelby, you're being modest, but he's being I, modest. But it's he's true. Like, I modest. wasn't in high school. I was just doing the thing. Like, whatever whatever was cool, I wouldn't say I was fully assimilating. But, like, for the most part, I was like, I guess that's you can't beat him, join him. So I really admire the fact that you were able to be you. I mean, I still had experiences where I was really involved and had leadership positions and things of that sort. But, like, it's because I assimilated. I don't think it's because I I did both. To your point about being modest, I did both. There was a little bit of like clearly my perspective as a black woman whose family is not from Ohio is wanted and needed and it's why I'm in some of these rooms. But there were people who didn't want to hear from me and just like, no, like just just assimilate. So I, I have to say I'm super impressed by that. And I also want to talk about like you mentioned a little bit your community at home and how they were really supportive. Did it feel weird to be in two worlds? So you're at boarding school, but also your mom's back home, your friends are back home. What what was that like? Yeah, that's a good question, Shelby. Thank you for asking that because it, it is something that even today, um, I feel like I'm making up for lost time, right? Being back in New York now, uh, I, I see so many of the passive mo- moments that make so many experiences worth it happen in front of me now. And I just think back to, wow, like these are all the moments that I missed when I was off at school just because I wasn't there. I wasn't proximate, right? And not only was I not proximate, but my normal environment, right, both mental and physical, just wasn't oriented around home. It was oriented around my classes at school, the extracurriculars I was involved in, and really that environment, right? Like Andover became a a lot of my my bubble in high school and kind of where I oriented myself around because in my eyes, continuing to progress at Andover is me progressing in life. And that's true, it is. Because, you know, going to that school, I think I mentioned this term before, social capital. I'm going to describe it now. Social capital is basically a, a lot of the intangible things that create advantages for people in society, be it connections to a particular institution, uh, a specific type of skill, like playing the piano or the violin, right? Or even even the clothes you wear, right? Like Gucci versus JCPenney, right? All these things are, are forms of capital that provide you access or inaccess to aspects of society. Uh, if you want to know a, a more Perfect definition of that. Check out Pierre Bourdieu, excellent social scientist who talks about it, and that's his life's work. But, you know, me going to Andover, right, being the type of school that it is, given who goes to that school and and its alumni, would provide me with social capital that will open doors for me in society. So me investing in that community was a very valid thing to do and the right thing to do. But that doesn't change the fact that there were so many aspects of home that I missed out on. And frankly speaking, weren't able to be a part of fully. So I'll give an example. Being at Andover, you know, I I missed a few like birthdays and and weddings and and moments that where people took photos and videos. And, you know, I remember hanging out with my cousins recently 
and they were talking about this event that happened when I was in high school. It was it was it was a, a cousin's wedding, and they were like, "Remember when what's the name hit the dance floor and they did this and they did that?" And I'm sitting here like I don't remember because I wasn't there. And everybody always kind of treated me as like, "Oh, Rob's out there doing his thing in Massachusetts." You know what I mean? Like my family was always proud of me, but I was always the other one, you know, doing something different. And that that thing that was different was something that my family has never had an opportunity to do before. And they would want me to do it, but it was different nonetheless, right? So this is the the space that I operated in being the first generation to, to be doing what I was doing. And then when I would come back home, right, like I would really try to like take advantage of everything over the summer, right? Like I would go to every single event or I would talk to every single body. And in a lot of ways, I would also be very present with people, with my friends and my family, because I wanted them to understand that I was still me, right? Like no matter... If I went to Andover or not, like I'm still the Rob that they know. And it got to the point where my friends like noticed that I was trying so hard to be present um, and be there that one of them told me, they were like, Rob, you know, like we're never going to, you know, you're always going to be, be, be you in our eyes. Right. You know, and like they, they would tell me about how me doing what I'm doing at boarding school gave them a different vision of what they could do in life. Right. And how, how proud they were to have a friend like me because I expose them to a whole new community, right? Like, it's like, in a way, and that's kind of how the way that I see myself and the way that we see each other, right? When it's one of us, it's all of us because there's not many of us there in the first place. So I always carry so many people with me um, in these environments that I enter into. And I think that has helped me with that tension, right? Knowing that, like, I'm not just here for me, I'm here for we is always helpful in, in, in mitigating that over time. And that's part of your magic as a person, because a lot of people actually do make it and do get in these spaces and they're kind of embarrassed or they feel uncomfortable with their background. And so they don't bring they don't bridge the gap. They're not like, oh, my friends are your friends. Like, let's all hang out. There is this separation. And I think for a lot of black people, it's tricky whether they're first generation or not, because we inevitably are going to be the first to do a lot of things like both my parents went to college, but neither one of them have ever lived in New York City. So it's very interesting because we are going to have to forge ahead to all these new paths. But I'm, I have to say, I'm so impressed by how you've been able to keep both worlds and maybe not seamlessly, but you've made an active choice. Like I'm, I'm around when I'm around. I care about you all. I'm the same Rob. Like that's, I think that's really admirable. Speaking of Andover, you spent time there for boarding school and then you went to Harvard for undergrad. So tell me about how you ended up at Harvard. What's the journey it's, there? It's still kind of surreal that I went to Harvard, to be honest, like when I think about it. And it's also very true when people say that, like, we don't we don't we don't really talk about it. <laughs> people ask where we go to school. We really try to, like, deflect, deflect, deflect. But it's because I think I understand the weight of that. Right. So talking about Harvard, I think this is important, and this also explains my journey. Similar to the Bronx, Harvard is another place and environment with a reputation that wildly precedes itself, but for the opposite reasons, right? Harvard is a place that's known for having an abundance of resources, having an abundance of opportunity for breeding leaders that change the world, right? For, for, having, for breeding the people that we will look to to change society. Obviously, that's not always true, right? There are people who go to other schools that do amazing jobs. I mean, look at our vice president and look at our president. Neither of them went to Harvard and they're both doing incredible things, right? Have done incredible things. Um, and there are tons of folks, you know, that we look to now who didn't even graduate from college that are changing the world, right? So, but 
that doesn't change the fact that when people when you say Harvard, like that has a particular notion and, 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 and feeling and gravitas to it. So part of the reason why Harvard came into my world is similar to what I saw myself at Andover, like thinking through nobody would expect somebody like me to go to Harvard. In fact, a lot of my classmates at Andover wouldn't expect somebody like me to go to Harvard. For instance, a lot of my classmates thought I was even at Andover because of affirmative action, right? That I, I actually didn't have the full qualifications, but because I was black, I got somewhat charity to get to, get to the school. And that's why I also felt like I always had this chip, of, chip on my shoulder, because at all points, I'm always being doubted um, or underestimated. And my argument to that is if, if it was the case, right, that I got into Andover, I got into Harvard because of affirmative action, then as soon as I got there in six months time, I would have been kicked out or I would have failed out or all of these things that supposedly got me in to the door would have failed me once I was there. But none of that happened, right? At Andover, I was on the honor roll my whole time there. I graduated with top honors and I won, and I won one of the top prizes at the school for my community work. And then, of course, I got into Harvard. Like my, my grades like correlate to the school that I got into. So for me, I kind of saw Harvard as very similar. It was thinking through Andover was like a practice ground. What's the next thing that has this huge perspective about it that I kind of feel like isn't really warranted, right? And, and want to poke holes in. And Harvard was that. You know, it was a place for me to, to try to continue to expand, one, where I could see myself and thus others can see themselves. And then two, understand if this school was truly about what it said it was about. You know, does it really walk the walk and talk the talk? Um, and in what ways does Harvard itself continue to fail folks in society like myself? So it's kind of like another project. And obviously, right, you don't you don't say no to Harvard. I, you know what I mean? Like I told my mom I got into Harvard and she was like, oh, you, you better fucking go. Excuse my language. But she was just like, your ass is going. Like, I don't want to hear nothing else. So that's the other thing, right? It's as much as it was an experiment for me, I was very proud that I was able to get into a school like that because it highlighted again the power and potential that existed in the community that I come from and everybody like me. I'm very grateful for it. I had a great experience at Harvard. I continue to get involved in the community very deeply. I continue to, to practice dance um, there. I was director of our hip hop dance company. Um, got deeply involved in, in, again, community work there. I led a protest my freshman year for Black Lives Matter when Eric Garner was killed, unfortunately. So there's a lot of things that I was able to still do at, at Harvard that, for me, proved that, one, I have more capability than just attending the school, that there was something unique about the perspective that I brought, and that's why they brought me there. And then I can continue to build and continue to grow, right? Like, I'll never beat Harvard's name, right? I'll, my name will never be as large as Harvard's, but... If I go to the school and I work as hard as I can and I, and I continue to lean into the growth that's, that's there for me, I'll come out of that 10 times better than when I came in. So I would say those are the reasons why I went to Harvard. How I got there, it's a mix of a few different things. I had college guidance counselor. I was putting some schools on my list and he was like, why don't you have Harvard on there? And I was like, I'm not going to get into Harvard, right? And also like, I don't want to get into Harvard. Harvard doesn't even want people like me. Uh, but he helped me change that perspective from... It's because you're probably not somebody they would pick that you should apply because that's what you've been that's what you've been doing, right? You know, you came to Andover in the same capacity. So why not Harvard? And then I also think outside of the experiment of like seeing if this environment would accept me, I visited the campus. And when I visited the campus, I saw that there were so many other students just like me on this campus fighting for change. 
I remember my, my senior year was when Harvard had I2M Harvard, which is where the black students on campus got together and created a whole call to action, a play and activism and protest on campus that pointed to the fact that black and brown students at Harvard deserved the same level of community recognition and, and acknowledgement as any other student on that campus. And when I saw that already existing on that campus, that's when I knew that this was a place that I could be because there are other people fighting for the same things that I'm fighting for to make sure that before I even get there that I could exist. And that was the same thing that I was doing at Andover. So I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of that community of folks who, who were challenging institutions and also be at an institution that, frankly speaking, was willing to be challenged and willing to allow students to have their voice in that way and then see what comes of that. Because change can only happen when people are listening to each other. Like if two folks are talking or two groups are talking in, in vacuums, they may have the great things to say, but nothing will ever come of it if people aren't listening to it. And, you know, there's nothing better to get somebody to listen to you than saying you go to Harvard. A hundred percent. That's like a party trick. I went to Harvard. I love that you found community there. I think a lot of people, when they talk about people of color, black people specifically coming from like low income homes or first generation, they're always like, oh, well, their experience must have been hard. So I think one of the coolest things about it is when I hear about your Harvard experience in this podcast and beyond, it seems like you really took the community by storm. But my question is when you started, so when you went from Andover to Harvard initially, what was that landing like? Did it take a while to ramp up? Did you find your people immediately? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think this is important because it's nuanced. So Andover is a school that was known for you know, sending their kids to schools like Harvard, right? It's what we call a feeder school. So in terms of like getting to campus and finding my community, it, it was a bit easier than it would be for other folks because I had a lot of Andover alumni there that I had built relationships with over my four years. So I had friends from like when, when they were, when I was a freshman and they were seniors and then juniors and sophomores. So it gave me a, a, a bit of ease to know that there were people that I already knew on that campus. I think the other thing that makes Andover unique is that it's a boarding school and it's modeled after kind of what it would be like to go to college. So I was very used to living in a dorm. I was very used to washing my own clothes. I was very used to office hours. I was very used to negotiating and conversing with my professors in a way that you would expect one to do so in college. So a lot of those social behaviors and ways of working that existed at Andover was kind of a training ground for a school like Harvard, and it made it easier for me to navigate academically. Um, so I, I will say that from a transition period, I did have an easier time because I got to have practice really at boarding school. But what changed at Harvard was I think I was really exposed more to just how vast people's lives were than me. Like I said, Andover were kids, right? So like there's no leaving campus. There's none of that. And like, we're all growing up together, right? Like we're talking about things that kids talk about, but at Harvard, I'm on campus with adults, right? These are people who are, who have lived a bit of life. Not everybody is coming in at the age of 18, 19. Some people have taken gap years. Some folks are coming from the military, depending on which country they're from. So there's such a, there's such a difference in age and experience that it creates a little bit more stratification um, from a social perspective. And it's bigger. It's just a bigger school with more people, more professors, and, 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 and more, more things to do. So, you know, I think that the, the sheer size of it, you know, I think I felt, I felt a bit, 
at the beginning overwhelmed because it was like, wow, like there's all these people here who are excellent, who are great. I mean, like we had Olympic gold medalists. We had, you know, future Nobel Prize winners. Right. You know, we have people who can who's, who speak at the inauguration, as you've just seen with with the incomparable Amanda Gorman. Right. These are the people that go to campus. So it's it, it can be overwhelming. Um, and I think for me, it was like, damn, like. I thought I was doing good at handover, like, <laughs> you know, like this is, this is a whole new ball game. But again, I, what I try to remember is that I'm here for a reason and my reason is different from the reasons why everybody else is here. It was just all about, you know, continuing to believe in the reasons why I got to handover in the first place and why I'm here. You know, I think what was awesome too, is I had a really great roommate, right? My, my roommate on my freshman year was from Azerbaijan. Shelby, you got a chance to meet him um, at, at uh, I think, uh, at one of our offsites. You know, great dude from Azerbaijan, which is a town and province that's on the edge of Turkey. Uh, he knew like six different languages, had his own like social entrepreneurship startup. And it was funny because what we bonded over was our similar lived experience, where me growing up in the South Bronx was so similar to how he grew up in, in Azerbaijan, but we were worlds apart. And, you know, I think having him also made me feel more comfortable and made Harvard's feel smaller because we were able to bring two worlds together in our in our one room. And it was through those experiences, leaning on that, finding more people like him who are open to sharing their experiences and connecting off of off of the things that we have that bring us together as much as our differences that really made the Harvard experience one worthwhile. And then your boy got his roof together at some point, And then it was it was a wrap from there. I believe that. I totally believe that. So you talked about how the people at Harvard, when you got there, you're adults, you're no longer in high school. And at Andover, where you were saying you had very similar experiences, basically because you're in the same place. You live together, you're in high school, we're in the same place. So when you got to Harvard and you realized people live these vast lives, were there, was there ever any insecurity? Knowing that you knew your purpose of being there, but was it hard to hear people talk about, oh, for winter break, I'm going to the Swiss Alps. And you're like, I'm going to go home. Yeah, it was. I think I think what it did for me was it, it, it really made very real why my experience as a kid growing up was the way it was. And it also made it very apparent just how how stark that was, right? You know, growing up I never thought we were poor, right? I just I because all I saw was people like me, right? So like I didn't understand poverty really until I, I, I got to, to Harvard. Um one because I took a, a sociology course that discussed social inequalities and how they formed. And I, I got to put words to the experiences that I had. And in a lot of ways, putting those words to the experience, I think kind of opened up like consciousness in some ways of like how deeply rooted some of these are. And it made me start thinking like, wow, if I grew up this way, then that means the rest of my family has been living this for generations. And it kind of just made it so much more meaty, right? And, 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 and I, I think I just, I just felt the weight of it more. Um, because I became more conscious of it. And I got to see and experience through through my friends how much I was missing because of those disparities, right? When when some of my friends would refer to seasons as verbs, that's when I knew I was playing a different game. So I'm summering here. I'm wintering there. Is that even grammatically correct? You know what I mean? Like, I was like, is that, like, you can you, you can say you're summering somewhere. Like, you can you can turn summer into a verb. Those experiences, I think, you know, it, it felt very insecure because it was like some things that I wish that I could do with my family um, and, you know, places that I think that they can see. And even when my friends would invite me to these places, right, there was also guilt involved because 
nobody else from my family will see this. And like, I don't want to come home and talk about the time that I went to Aruba and did all these things, knowing the conditions that a lot of my folks and friends live in back home. I felt like it would, it, it felt almost like gloating to me or, or, or bringing them something that they can't do anything with. So it, it did make me feel a bit isolated because in the experience itself, right, when I would go with some of my friends to maybe their vacation home or whatever, I was grateful to be there, but I did feel like an outsider because I knew that I couldn't even afford to pay for anything if it, if it happened to break, right? So like I would be there like, and my mom always taught me like, you don't touch nothing in nobody's house anyway, right? So you know what I'm saying? Like, this is what we do. But I would be sitting there like in my own little little cluster, not trying to do too much because I know that this moment right here is not my lived reality. And in some ways, right, if, if something were to go down, if something were to happen, right, like maybe something broke or whatever like that, that difference between us would become that much more apparent right then and there because of a price tag or because of a, a history in which that item or place was located in. So even though I got to experience these things, I still kind of felt out, out of place because I knew that at a moment's notice, that would be stripped. And then going back home, trying to talk about those things. Um, created even more of a this disconnection because my folks and my and my people back in the Bronx can't really envision it. They've only seen it on TV or imagined it, so it's not really con- conversing. It's more explaining. I spent a lot of my life explaining and not conversing with folks because nobody really knew what my unique experience was, being first generation in these places. You know, I think for me navigating that experience and understanding how isolating it can be and how lonely it can be. You know, I, I wanted to do something that acknowledged that. And when I started having conversations with other first-gen college graduates and students, I started to realize that this wasn't an experience that I held alone and that it's so important to understand this experience because I think it really says something powerful about education, access, and opportunity in our society. When you have folks who quote-unquote, achieve the American dream, right? Like going from, from, from the Bronx and going to Harvard, but don't really experience the feeling of what that's supposed to be like. And in some ways, it actually creates more of a derision and understanding of the division and how, and how unachievable the American dream is than it does make it more achievable. It's kind of weird irony in a way. So yeah, I think to that experience, it, it was definitely something that I even deal with today. You know, it doesn't go away, even though I've graduated. I think it's something that I still carry with me. And being back home in the Bronx right now, I still feel a little bit of this tension because it's always like I can I can up and leave if I so choose. But in a lot of ways, that connection is so, so hard to, to bring together. So I'm always going to kind of straddle this line. It's become easier to deal with, easier to navigate. But I, I kind of want a world where that line doesn't have to be straddled. So hopefully the work that I'm doing now can can help create that. Yeah, I would love if the line didn't have to be straddled because I think a lot of black people deal with that. If you're seeking more opportunity, you kind of have to leave the nest. And often that means leaving your community and building these experiences that the people in your community don't feel necessarily connected to. And it's something I've talked to my own parents about. I mean, they don't necessarily relate to my experiences at all or even what I'm doing today. So you feel like you're in two worlds because they care when you said your whole thing about explaining like, explaining to my parents that I joined a sorority and I live in a sorority house. They're like, what? But I'm explaining to you like why I did that and what it's like living there. And they love me just like your people love you. So they try to understand, but you're like, you don't don't really get it. Like you don't really get it. That's not your lived experience. So I think 
there is something really special about what you're doing and having first generation people tell their stories and know that there's a support for them. I am also curious if your friends at Harvard ever like acknowledge those differences. I noticed that my friends and people who I meet, even in, in the workplace, don't always acknowledge that we have two very different lived experiences. So do people acknowledge that or did you guys just kind of act like it wasn't happening? Yeah, I would say my core group of friends, definitely. You know, my core group of friends, we had a lot of conversations around these topics and that's why we're friends because it just came naturally to us. Just like in terms of like other friends that I've made at Harvard that like aren't people that I talk to every single day, but are still my friends and I, I consider meaningful in my life. Those conversations didn't come up as often because I think they're just in, uncomfortable to have. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think it's important to acknowledge that it's uncomfortable for both sides, right? It's uncomfortable for folks who are living kind of that experience, like folks like me that come from inaccess and for people who have excess of access. Because not a lot of folks actually view themselves, you know, or want people to view them by the wealth or opportunity that they have, right? They want people to see the real them. It's, it's kind of hard to difficult and, ne- and hard to talk about. I mean, that's why we still have these issues today. We can't, even on, the, even on the political floor, it's difficult for people to have these conversations. And that just shows how, one, like sensitive and vulnerable and, and real those are and like how difficult they are, but also shows the weight of them. Um, so I would say, generally speaking, at Harvard, outside of the classroom, because a lot of people can talk about it and analyze it, right? When it's a subject matter to be dissected, they can talk about it then. But when it comes to folks that they're talking to that are living it, it does get a little bit sensitive. That's why I really appreciate the friends that I have now because, you know, we can have those hard conversations. And a lot of my friends are also um, other other black folks who went to Harvard but have a different socioeconomic status than I do. And then I have other friends who came from even even worse socioeconomic status than I, than I did, right? Like friends who are refugees um, from, from war-torn countries, right? And that's a perspective that I don't even have. You know, I did grow up in abject poverty, but that's in a country that has at least a stable government. So... Our friend group, in a lot of ways, were able to talk about those experiences and create a haven for those ideas amongst the, amongst ourselves, which I really do appreciate. But I won't say that it was easy to do, and it's definitely not something that comes naturally to people. No, not at all. It's a very uncomfortable conversation. I feel like it's one worth having sometimes, but like you said, in your close circle, the older I get, the more I feel comfortable talking about it because it goes back to what I said about people assuming we had similar situations. So even the most basic of things, like in college, if you're like, okay, like we want to go out to eat. And if you don't have a job in college, you're like, I don't really have money. Like, I don't, I don't have money. Like my parents gave me an allowance and like I worked, but if you didn't have money, that becomes a discussion. Does someone pay for you? You know what I mean? So I think the older I get, the more I'm comfortable saying it, but it, it is this weird conversation because you don't want to tell too much about your life but at the same time you're like we just aren't living life the same like my parents aren't paying for me to go on spring break to your point I wasn't it wasn't like we were just I had the saddest life but it's like my mom and dad aren't giving me money to joy ride to Miami so we're not living the same situation even when it comes to student loans I've had friends make comments and innocently like they're not trying to insult anyone but they're just their experience is different like, oh, I can't imagine paying student loans. I'm like, imagine it. I mean, so many people's parents can't pay for college out of pocket. And I mean, I have student loans to pay and I'm fine. Financially secure, everything's good over here. So like, it, the conversations naturally, I've pushed myself to say stuff because sometimes it just gets a little ignorant. 
I really feel like people just need to be more okay with that, right? Like, I think it's it's okay that the lives that we lived are different, right? Like, we don't have to have lived the same lives in order for us to be friends or to have a, a, a strong bond. In fact, I think the power of the experience is the fact that we have such different things that we bring to the table that create the diversity and expansion of, of human of human life that, that we hope to see, right? And you think about education, education is supposed to be that place that provides for that to happen, right? You know, you're supposed to be that place where, you know, folks who are the first in their family to go to college, for folks who are 10th generation legacy can come together and build bonds and build and hopefully create a more equitable society. But in a lot of times, it, it only it only serves to sow sow more division and, and and things of that nature. So I agree with you, Shelby. I think I think it's I think we just we just need to be okay a little bit more with you know things being different, right? Exactly. Like we can still be friends, just like you said, but don't wash away my experience because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like I like the discourse around that. I think it's really cool that your friend group has been doing that since college. I want to talk about your effort to combine stories and talk to people about being first generation. So you started Become What You Can't See, and I want to hear what you're doing with it. What is it about? So Become What You Can't See is a platform um, designed to provide uh, and amplify the voices of first gen college graduates um, and their stories in an effort, one, to create a community post-graduation for this experience of being the first in your family, first in your community or what have you to enter into sectors of society that you otherwise haven't seen yourself and to create examples and tangible pathways for those coming after after you to mitigate that going forward, right? In a lot of ways, it's, it's creating this, I, I, my hope is to create this like network of folks who were the first in their families to do a lot of things and create this network and leverage what what typically is an experience that is the lack of social capital as social capital itself. It, it really started in college when I was I was I was in class. Uh, one of my favorite classes uh, called Vision and Justice, taught by one of my favorite teachers at Harvard, at Harvard, uh, Sarah Lewis. She's an incredible person. Look up her work, and she was opining in class and talking about the importance of imagery and how important it has been in, in, in American society. We're a country that's been built on symbols, right? We look at statues, portraits, pop culture. These are our historical records of how society has been built and who in society is included in that historical record, right? What does it mean to be a citizen and to, and to feel a part of the American dream? A lot of that is played out in imagery and also visualizing um, yourself in places. And she said this thing, she said that it's hard to imagine becoming something that you can't see. And and I, when I when I heard that, I just sat with that for a long time because, you know, it really spoke to my experience, right? And, and thinking through navigating Harvard or navigating Andover and navigating these communities. If I had had some type of perspective of like, oh, okay, kids from the Bronx have done this before, you know, Black people have been here and did this before, right? Like, think about Hidden Figures, for instance. How When that movie came out, what it did for, for STEM in our community. Seeing yourself in places that you never never thought of is so powerful. And a lot of us are, are becoming that, right? We're becoming the thing that we couldn't see such that it exists for those who come after us. 
Um, and I wanted to champion that. I wanted to create something that just champions the folks who are doing that today, the expanded world that they're creating because of it. So become what you can't see at become what you can't see on all social platforms is a place where we're doing that exploration, where we're championing those who are the first to enter in parts of society that they otherwise haven't been and are and are willing and able and, and, and sharing their experience such that others who go through it can have a tangible understanding of what that looks like should they decide to undertake it too. That's so cool. I think it's so powerful sharing those stories and connecting with people because the community is what sustains us. So if you have everyone telling their stories, your story is so powerful. I'm sure you've gathered a great crew of people. It'll encourage others to do what you've done because it sounds so daunting, even at 27, the idea of going, leaving home and going to a boarding school. It's like, so different but if someone said hey like rob did this we're from a similar area like i think i can pull this off and you can give them the cheat codes like that right there is so magical right and i, I think the idea here shelby is i i want to make this specific because what i don't want it to be is right it's the idea is it that hey i did this so you should do this or you can do it too it's more so that i did this so you should believe in yourself do whatever you want to do, right? Like, I never want to convince somebody to do what I did. I only want to convince them of what they have inside of them. And I hope that with this, right, we're creating enough of a repertoire of showing that even when something looks something that something looks daunting or that you've never seen anybody do it before, that you can be that person to break that barrier, right? Um, and that's that's in whatever field. And what I love about this is that this community is also inherently intersectional, right? It crosses race, it crosses gender, it crosses sexuality, it crosses geography. It it can cross socioeconomic status as well. So like this community, I think, is one of first generation people, I think is one that can really unite us because their experience is rooted in the things that divide us in the first place been a month <laughs> since I launched so um you know we got the we have the growing pains of that I think the feedback that I've gotten so far the 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 folks that I've been exposed to and the stories I've been able to to capture so far are, are incredible and I, I just can't wait to share it um with a broader audience when, when when they're ready well if it's anything like your story it's going to be inspirational and I love the idea of encouraging people of the next generation to do whatever they want because I think we were taught or at least I was taught that there is a little bit of a blueprint like you are expected to go to college you are expected to have this kind of job my mom and I just talked about it I was like what would you have said if I said I didn't want to go to college she's like I think that if you had a plan I would have been fine with it and I mean you know hindsight is 2020 because I don't know if that's you know I'm not saying that that's not true but I never in my life would have told her I'm not going to college I don't think I'm not sure the conversation would have been that smooth but we had, my point being is we had expectations of like what things were supposed to be. And I love the notion of, you just need to believe in yourself. You can do whatever you feel like doing. It doesn't have to be an Ivy League school. It doesn't have to be working in STEM. It can be, you can, you can do whatever you feel like doing. So I think that's really cool. The last question I have is, what is one piece of advice you would give a first generation student? My piece of advice, I, I think is more of a, more of a statement. And that is that you are not the exception, you are exceptional. And what I mean by that is a lot of times, you know, we deal with imposter syndrome because we are a minority in the places that we find ourselves. Um, when you're the first to do something, you are automatically like in a group that is new to it. And it can feel very daunting and feel like, 
I, I, I got here by luck, right? I got here through affirmative action. I got, I got here through things other than what I carried in me that brought me here in the first place. And that's just, that's just not the case. Like, sure, everybody, everybody has had help getting to where they are. Folks who have seen people in their position before were helped by the fact that people have been there already. That kid who was 10th generation at that school owes everything to the nine generations before them, right? And so, like, there's everybody has had help, but everybody has, has, has had something unique about them that they also brought to the table that put them in the places that they are. To any first generation student, you know, professional person who is um, in a new income bracket, somebody who is traveling for the first time or whatever, like somebody who is just in a new space that their community or their, their immediate environment has, has never known before, know that you are there because you are exceptional and not because you are the exception. And that's what I'll leave them with. Wow. Those are amazing, powerful, like parting words. I'm speechless. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us. And I loved hearing your story as always. And just thank you. A big thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege, Shelby. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I'm looking forward to, to, to watching this continue to grow. Listen, y'all need to watch Shelby Jones, man. It's going to be a name that's going to be ringing through the halls. And I'm just saying, um, this is only the beginning. So I'm happy to be a part of, 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 of this and, and excited to see where you and Define Normal go from here. Thank you so much, Rob. No problem. Peace, y'all. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I would also love your feedback. If you enjoyed the episode or have a comment for me, please leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app. See you next week.